0: Good morning. Today we will be reading from Ephesians 5:22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husband as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself." And let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord.
1: That part where we say, This is the word of the Lord, is not just liturgy and it's not just some routine throwaway thing to get us transitioned with me getting up here. Um, I think each week as we read the word of God, we need to remind ourselves, This is the word of God. There are enormous pressures in our culture not to preach or not to believe certain parts of the Bible anymore. Thomas Jefferson literally took a pocket knife to his Bible and cut out everything he didn't agree with. I think that's an honest way of doing what we tend to do, where we mentally deconstruct the Bible and kind of make ourselves the ultimate arbiters of truth and goodness. And what I mean is, like, if we... If we like something the Bible says, if we agree with something the Bible says, we're like, okay, that's true, that's caring, that's helpful, and if we disagree with something or we know someone who disagrees and we care about them, it's easy to say that part of the Bible is not helpful, it's outdated maybe, and I've even heard it's bigoted, it's it's prejudicial in a harmful way. And before we get into this text this morning, I kind of want to remind you of two massive truths. One, family, God loves you. And two, God is king. And if you believe God loves me and God is king, then you know his law, not just the gospel, but his law is an expression of his love for you, his care for you that he's saying you don't do certain things, you don't think certain things, you don't react certain ways, you don't believe certain things, because I know as God, and I know the way I've made you, these are harmful, these are deceitful, these are ultimately destructive. They lead to death, and I love you, and I want to protect you, sometimes even from yourself, but certainly from harming each other. And if I'm telling you to do something, in the language of of Paul in this letter, if I'm telling you to put something on, to be filled with the Spirit, and to express something that is an expression of the Spirit, it's because that's good for you. It's because it brings whole life flourishing. So that includes what Paul said about sexual immorality at the beginning of this chapter, and it includes what he says about marriage here this morning. Now, a little bit of background. I've often heard something like this. Paul said this 2,000 years ago because everyone thought like this. We know better now. I've also heard Paul was just pandering to the patriarchy of his culture. By the way, a patriarchy which he himself benefited greatly from. And what I hear is, so scripture just reinforces the existing power structures of culture and those power structures in Paul's day were traditional. Um, Let me say two things about that. Nothing in this letter and nothing in any of Paul's writing implies a timidity about confronting cultural norms and disrupting them with the truth of the gospel. That's just not Paul. You're not being honest with Paul and Scripture if you think that he catered to existing power structures and bent the knee before them. Paul was often, let me remind you, read the book of Acts, he was often beaten, stoned, Imprisoned, exiled, and eventually beheaded because he confronted the norms of his culture with the gospel. That's facts. Secondly, the notion that Paul was reinforcing traditional stereotypes widely held in his day is also widely ahistorical and intellectually dishonest. He wasn't. Yes, Jews. In Paul's day had what we would say were pretty traditional family structures. So what I mean is like that, you know, kind of maybe some of you grew up in these kinds of homes where there was a traditional division of labor, and it's like dad does these kinds of things, and mom does these kinds of things, and we kind of understand what these kinds of things are, and dad stays out of the kitchen, and mom stays out of the yard, and that culture was like that, where the men were farmers, and herdsmen, and fishermen, and craftsmen, and the women stayed home, and they cooked, and they cleaned, and they made clothes, and they raised the children. And part of the reason was because back then, marriage was not for romance, it wasn't for love, it was for survival. People got married because that, that's, that's how you survived, like literally stayed alive and created a new generation to propagate the human race. I do agree that Jewish culture was very patriarchal, very patriarchal. In fact, so patriarchal that men had almost unilateral freedom to divorce and remarry at will. And you can actually read a conversation that Jesus had with some religious leaders about that, where they're like, Rabbi, we think that the men should just be able to do whatever. And Jesus is like, no, it wasn't like that from the beginning. But let's remind ourselves, I just shared a little bit about Jewish culture. Let's remind ourselves, Paul is not writing to a Jewish culture. He is not writing to Nazareth back home, like Jesus' hometown. He's writing to Ephesus. He's writing to a massive Greco-Roman city that, as we've already seen in this study, was an incredibly pagan Gentile audience. Quoting one historian, he says, The Jews had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of the morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks that God had not made him, quote, a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed. The position was worse in the Greek world. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible, The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct, and fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome in Paul's day, the matter was even worse. The degeneracy of Rome was tragic. It is not too much to say that the whole atmosphere of the ancient world was adulterous. The marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. Quoting Demosthenes, who was a what four centuries before Paul, he was a Greek statesman who said this, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for our household affairs. And Ephesus had embraced this grotesque patriarchy and they had added to it, and they'd added to it a number of things. Basically they, they they were one of the first cultures that added this feminist thinking, which is not healthy feminism, but they added this thinking, if men can act like animals, then we should be able to act like animals too. And if we have sexual perversions. We should turn them into idols, and we should build our identities around them. But that, That'll be great. And let's be sure to monetize them. That way someone can get filthy rich off of them. And you can turn to Acts 19 and read this story where Paul is first in Ephesus, and he's simply preaching the gospel. And people are losing their minds because they're like, what about Diana? What about our great sex cult? Like, what happens to our worship? What happens to our identity if we start going after Paul and believing Jesus? We've we got to give this stuff up, and we're going to lose money, and there's this massive riot. Now, why am I sharing this? Because we need to understand that what Paul wrote here was just as offensive to his original audience as it is to many of us today. And Paul didn't tiptoe around the issues to communicate some kind of vague niceness And he certainly didn't cater to the patriarchy. I'm calling this sermon countercultural marriage because what Paul wrote was as countercultural then as it still is now. And what he's saying to the church of Jesus Christ is, stop patterning your marriages after the world. Stop making them all about you and your rights. But he says this theme instead. Here's what this text is saying. A gospel marriage is a husband and wife laying down their rights for the good of the other. That's the whole theme. He's going to say this three ways. He's going to say the responsibility of wives, the responsibility of husbands, and the reflection of Christ. And I have a request here. Like, please let me show you what the text says before you're mad, like if you're still mad at the end, that's fine, we can talk, okay? But let me say what it says, all of it, for all parties, before you kind of make a judgment about are we being faithful to the text, are we being faithful to the heart of Jesus, okay? So number one, the responsibility of wives, and I want you to show you you that Paul has both a what and a why for both husbands and wives, and the what for the wife is He says, respectful submission for the benefit of your husband. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And verse 33, kind of this bookend, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I understand. We, 2023 Progressive America, we associate the word submission or the the concept of submission with things like subordination or subjugation. We think it sounds domineering. It sounds controlling. It sounds authoritarian or oppressive. Those are words that we would relate to the word submit or submission. And let me just caveat this and say, to be sure, there are domineering, controlling, authoritarian husbands. That includes a lot of Christian husbands. And it's a shame that any Christian husband would point to this text of Scripture and say, I can treat you how I want to treat you because it's right there, woman, submit. And if you're a husband like that, I will tell you on the authority of God's word, you are dead wrong. There is nothing in Scripture that gives you the authority or the right to be a domineering, controlling jerk. Nothing. And don't use Scripture to defend your, honestly, pagan practices. So let's, let's look at what Paul says and let's think about this. First, Paul broke cultural norms by directly addressing women. He did not say ever, husbands, tell your wives to submit. And that's how most Greek orators and that's how most Jewish rabbis would have said this. Husbands, I have a word for you to tell your wife later. No, Paul says, women, you're free moral agents. You're, you're equal beings, humans with men. Male and female, you're, you're equal. So I'm just going to talk to you directly. Second, Paul broke cultural norms by limiting the scope of submission. So in his culture, it's basically every woman submit to every man. So when Paul starts talking about submission to the woman, no woman would have been like, whoa, I'm freaked out. He's talking about submission. They would have been blown away that he's saying, I'm just talking about you submitting to the one person who is your husband. And they're like, I don't have to submit to all these other people. I'm just walking down the road. And some guy's like, here, carry this for me. And Paul would have said, that's right. You don't have to, you don't have to submit to like, all men as a category. I'm talking about a special covenant relationship with your husband. This is a unique way of relating to your own husband. Third, this is interesting. In the Greek, Paul technically doesn't even tell wives to submit to their husbands. What do you mean? I mean, the word submit isn't in verse 22 at all. It's not there in the Greek. Remember, we ended with verse 21 last week, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's going to be the context now in which he says, let me give you three examples of this. Wives, husbands, children, parents, and slaves, masters. And by the way, in each case, he addresses the party with the least agency first. He addresses wives first, he addressed his children first, and he addresses slaves first. This is interesting. What he actually wrote is something like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, submission is clearly implied in the text, in the context as well, but this is an incredibly soft way of putting it. The very opposite of like some kind of heavy-handed patriarchy, just submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, like wives to their own husbands. Um, Fourth, let's talk about this word submit, as we did for a little bit last week. "Hupitasso" just literally means not subordination, not subjugation, not domineering. It means to arrange yourself under. If you remember, if you were here, if you had a chance to listen to that, it just simply speaks of humility and deference. Our last point last week was that a spiritful person is deferential. And I gave you some examples. Like hupotasso means putting someone else's needs, priorities, and wishes first. Hupitaso means let others inform your decisions and even make your decisions. You don't have to make all the decisions. Hupitasso means giving up having to be right when it's not a clear black-and-white issue. Hupatasso means surrendering, thinking that your perspective, your feelings, your opinions are the only ones that matter in a conversation. By the way, this word submit, hupotasso, is used of Jesus Christ's submission not only to the Heavenly Father, but of Jesus Christ's submission to his earthly parents. What we learn from that is if Jesus Christ, the eternal, uncreated Son of God, is arranging himself under broken parents, then there's nothing inherent in the word that implies lesser than, inferior, not as good as, not as intelligent, not as capable. Nothing implies that at all. All Paul's saying is, wives, respect your husbands, be deferential toward them, honor them, seek their good. Why now? Why? That's the what? Why? Because it's a picture of the church's respectful submission to Christ. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, notice the the wife's posture of submission isn't ultimately about her husband and his worthiness. Paul says it's about the gospel. Okay, what does he mean? The, The husband is the head of the wife? As Christ is the head of the church, head is the Greek word kephale. Most of the time in the Bible, kephale refers to the thing that sits between your shoulders. It's just head. It's your head. We, we understand that. When it's used in a metaphorical sense, as it is here, it carries the sense of prominence, preeminence, leadership, authority, egalitarians. I, re- I read a number of articles this week where they say kephale also means source or origin. And they'll say, so Paul isn't saying the husband is the leader of his wife in any way or like an authority in his family. It's simply saying the husband is the source or the origin of his wife. And I want to think about that for a second. Does source make sense in that context? He's the origin of his wife. I mean, I guess you could say that about Adam and Eve. Like God literally took a rib from Adam's side. And fashioned Eve. So I guess we could say that about the first marriage. But I'll, I'll tell you, there is no sense in which I am the source or origin of my wife. And most of you men would say the same. You're, you're not the source of your wife. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so I go on. It is source how this word was used in other literature? And one historian did a bunch of research and concluded this. In two thousand three hundred thirty-six instances of kafale. From classical Greek literature and from Philo, Josephus, the Apostolic Fathers, the Epistle of Aristius, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and Achilla, Symmachus, and Theodosian, no instances were discovered in which kephale ever had the meaning, source, or origin. So, nobody used the word that way in his culture. In two other places, Paul here in this letter refers to christ as the head of the church you can look at these chapter 1 verse 20 and chapter 4 verse 15. and in both those instances now this is the third where he calls christ the head of the church in every instance where paul says christ is the head of the church the only interpretation that makes sense is saying christ is in a position of authority and leadership for his church for his bride so we have to conclude that Christ being the head of the church implies authority and leadership. But I want you to notice what he does with his authority and leadership. And this is where, guys, you you can't get off with some kind of domineering, controlling, I'm better than, I'm superior to, I I just have a better role, and I'm going to tell her what to do. Because immediately, what do you see Christ doing with his authority and his headship, if we put it that way? He saves his bride at the cost of his own life. How does Jesus use authority? Essentially to lay it down for the benefit of the one that he loves. And that brings us to the responsibility of husbands. Very simply, guys, what's your responsibility? The what is self-giving love for the benefit of your wife. That's your role in marriage. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then again, jumping to 33, the bookend, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And I just want to say this again because like, you, don't, you may not know this. No one said this in the time of Paul. No one said, husband, go love your wife and give your life for her. They said, husbands, find an arranged marriage that works well for you, To, you know, you find a woman of character who's going to raise your kids well because you're going to be off having a great time with other people and being unfaithful. And Paul has none of that kind of patriarchy and says, husbands, your what is self-giving love for her benefit. Why? Because it's a picture of Christ's self-giving love for the benefit of the church. Verse 25 and on, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such things, that she might be holy and without blemish. And by the way, whatever you think of of this call to deferential respect, And you're like, oh, that's that's really hard in our culture. And it is, because no one will give you that picture. Paul took three verses to explain the responsibility of wives. He takes eight verses to explain the responsibility of men. And I would venture to say that the man's responsibility is actually harder. Love her as Christ loved the church. And until you're at the place of actually loving her, To the degree and in the ways that Christ loved the church, you still got work to do. So husbands, he's saying, what is our responsibility as husbands? It's not just to go get a good job and provide for your family and turn on the TV and be absent. It's not even just to love them. I love her. Well, great. He says, your responsibility is to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I want you to think about this. If something is flying at your head, what is your instinct? Like if someone threw a punch at you or you're skiing and you're crashing and you realize like I'm going to hit my head, what's everyone's instinct? Like you'll, you'll block it with an arm or you'll cover or something like that. And that's always the way it works is my body exists to protect my head. The head is the most important thing. It's the prominent, it's the preeminent, it's the authority. It tells the rest of me what to do. And there's a, there's a natural instinct like duck and cover. The body, if it has to take a blow, a cut, a scrape, a break, it's all about protecting the head. And do you see how the gospel and how Jesus completely flips this on his head? Because he says, I am the head of the body, the church. But Jesus never says, church, give yourself for me, protect me. He says, I give myself for you, the head, giving itself to protect the body, giving itself to perfect the body. This is the gospel that Paul is preaching in a culture where everyone expects, of course husbands get their way, of course women submit to everyone, of course women exist to protect the reputation of their husband, so lie about what he's up to and, and protect him at all costs. And Jesus says, nope. No, husband, what, what are you supposed to be doing in your relationship is you're supposed to be looking at your wife, and he, he uses this analogy of, like, it's like she, she belongs to you. She's, like, basically, you're, you're this one flesh union. She's your body, and the head gives itself to protect and perfect the body. He goes on here to explain, like, Jesus sanctifies his bride, his body, which means he makes us holy. He cleanses us, washes us. He presents us radiant, spotless, wrinkle-free, without defect. And there's actually a picture here. This language he's using is intentional. It's like the, the the backstory on the ceremony of a bride getting ready for her wedding day. It's like there's a ceremonial washing. Like you want to get all clean. And then you want to make sure that what you're wearing is like, you know, is it spotless? Are there any wrinkles? So we're ironing it out but again he flips it on his head and it's not like the woman's not off here preparing like i got to wash myself i got to get my clothes ready so that i present myself to him and i look amazing for him before he kind of discards me and goes just goofs around it is the husband saying let me wash you let me press your clothes let me nourish you and cherish you the way I do myself. And there's, there's something I'm, I'm trying to figure out. Like, was Paul being somewhat sarcastic here, a little tongue-in-cheek? And I, I don't know. Maybe he was incredibly serious, and this made more sense back then in a different light. I, I think he's kind of being sarcastic. Like, come on, guys. Like, don't sit there and be like, well, I don't, I don't know how to love my wife. I mean, she's just a different person. And he's like, you've spent your whole life taking care of your own body. You know what it means to, like, nourish yourself and cherish yourself, and take care of yourself, and protect yourself. And he's like, treat another human being the way that you have spent your life, treating yourself. So don't play dumb like you don't know. And guys, I want to say for our culture, for every authoritarian husband I've had to deal with, I've had to deal with 10 husbands who abdicate. For every domineering husband I've had to talk to and counsel, there are 10 that are disengaged and, and just distant. And some of you maybe even grew up in a home like this, and you, it's hard for you to imagine. Like, how do I submit to some guy who basically just lives his own life, who gets his own food, who sleeps in his own bed, and, and mom's over here all the time, like, okay, I guess, I'll, I guess I'll get my own bank account and work my own job and make my own food for me and the kids and sleep in my own bed and... Guys, that is evil. Our problem is not just domineering husbands who are like, look, submit. I think in our culture, we have a ba- way bigger problem of just guys just living for themselves and just being like, yeah, I got this, I got this arm candy, but she's kind of starting to age, doesn't look the way she did when, she, when we got married. And you start growing this distance, and sin builds up, and resentment builds up, and the husband's just like, I don't, I don't care. It's worth, it's too much work. She annoys me. She bothers me. And do you see why Like nearly 50% of marriages in our culture end in divorce? And another huge percent of them, and some this is some of your parents, another huge percent of them are like, well, we would never get divorced, but we can't stand each other. It's because, I mean, this is always fun. Premarital counseling is fun. It's like, why do you want to get married? And it's like, well, you know all these things and those are good things and that pent up excitement and like this is the one, she's the one he's the one and like we we just so quickly forget that feeling because it was kind of just a a feeling not a commitment let alone a covenant that we took seriously but the problem of our culture is we go into marriage thinking what can I get out of this? It's going to feel good. It's going to look good. This person is going to help me, um, you know, become my truer self. And it's just going to be fun. And my rights, my rights, my rights. And our culture is obsessed with rights. And do you notice here how in this text, again, completely countercultural, Paul doesn't talk about your right. He's not like, wives, here's your rights. Husbands, here's your rights. But what's fascinating is he says, Wives, here's your responsibility. Husbands, here's your responsibility. And and what is each one's responsibility? To fight for the rights of the other. So you go into marriage, and it's like, it's about my rights, and you hurt me. You took something away, and she's like, well, it's, it's my rights, and you, you did that too. And if you got two people that are like, my rights, no, my rights, no, my and you got this tug of war or a boxing match, and verbally and emotionally, and unfortunately even physically sometimes, it's like, no, no wonder we live with such broken marriages. But you see how God is calling you to something so much better than that. Like men, do you see that the proper use of your authority is to selflessly invest it in the woman that you chose to marry? You give everything, you give your very self to say, I want to nourish you, I want to cherish you and where I find that I'm not doing that so that you are free to be all that God wants you to be, so that you're growing and maturing, and you're getting healthier and healthier the longer we're married, then, then, guys, you repent and say, God, I'm not helping my wife that way as you helped your bride and continue to help your bride. And I love this summary that John Stott gave. That's why I told you, like, hang in till I'm near the end, okay? He says this. The essence of Paul's instruction is this wives submit, husbands love. And these words are different from one another since they recognize the headship which God has given to the husband. Yet, when we try to define the two verbs, it is not easy to distinguish clearly between them. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It is to give oneself up for somebody as Christ gave himself up for the church. Thus, submission and love are two aspects of the very same thing, namely of that selfless self giving, which is the foundation of an enduring and growing marriage. That's why I said the theme is a gospel marriage is a husband and wife laying down their rights for the good of the other. And the final point here. Is the reflection of Christ. Notice how Paul concludes then. He says, verse 31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, it may not be obvious here, but Paul is quoting Genesis 2, 24, where God, with Adam and Eve, The first man, the first woman, the first marriage. He's outlining, here's my original, perfect design for marriage. And that therefore a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and they become one flesh. That is quoting Genesis 2.24. And we preached on this at length last September, I think. So you can go back and listen to it. I don't have time to unpack all of that or repeat all of that. But I want to point out a couple things. As I say, this is a reflection of Christ in the gospel. Notice, first of all, this is love across difference. It's, it's explicitly there that God's design for marriage was one man plus one woman for life. Now, we live in a broken world, so like other things enter into the picture. The brokenness of divorce, the brokenness of death, where one is, one is gone. But from God's original design, it's love across difference. And even as religious leaders came to Jesus and they tried to trick him about marriage in the language of their day, like, well, well, we believe this. You don't believe that? And Jesus goes right back to the same verse, and he says, no, I I don't believe that. And he says, it's a man and a woman covenanting together for life that is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church. Notice, too, it's a unique and a permanent love because he's saying you leave father and mother. Now, I've got three kids, and I love each one of them with my whole heart. And they love me but I'm, I'm preparing them for life. And, and there comes a day where hopefully my kids, in a sense, like walk out of my home and say, I found this other person that loves Jesus and I wanna, I wanna love them the way Christ loves. And I wanna covenant together with this person and I'll be like, your love for that person is unique and permanent. It's different than the love you have for me. So I want to raise kids that are ready for that kind of love, that kind of commitment, where he says a man leaves father and mother and holds fast to his wife, which is the idea of commitment and permanence. And they two become one flesh. So he's saying it's an intimate love. An intimate love, not just two bodies coming together, but two lives coming together. And you know in marriage it's like, our, our, our lives are, are merging. They're, they're zipping together in just an infinite number of ways where, like, yeah, I know your strengths, and I accept them. I know your weaknesses, and I accept them. I know your idiosyncrasies, and I accept them as we make this one life together. So it's an incredibly intimate love. And again, Paul is saying this love across difference that is unique and permanent and intimate is not ultimately about You. It is a picture of Jesus and the church. By the way, to love someone like this requires a lot, of, a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of words like, I'm sorry, I was wrong when I said this, when I did this, when I reacted this way, will you please forgive me? And in that way, as marriages continue to say, look, I'm not a perfect person. I'm far from a perfect person. I sin against my spouse. And I have to say, I'm sorry. And I have to be patient with things. And she has to be patient with things. And as we we walk this out for 30 or 40 or 50 years, do you you ever see like an older Christian couple or maybe not even Christians? This is what's incredible about it. You see a couple that's been together for 50 years, and you look at them, and they're throwing a party, and they're sincerely still joyful. It's not like, yeah, we can, do a, we can do a 50th thing with the old ball and chain, and there'll be, like, cake and stuff, and my friends will be over here, and her friends will be over there, and most of them are dead already anyway, and we can just kind of do this. Um, <laughs> I've been to some of these where it's like you see the joy and the the sparkle is still there. And you think, how many times have they had to be patient and loving and forgiving and reconciling and and coming together and saying like, hey, we, we need more mercy. We need more grace in our relationship toward each other. And that's how they get there. And I see a marriage like that. Again, even if it's not a Christian marriage, and I'm like, that's a picture of how Jesus loves us. Just like never stopping, never giving up, never failing, never turning his back and walking away, but saying like, you hurt me again, you hurt me, but I love you, let's do this. And I just want to conclude, if you fight for your rights in your marriage and she fights for her rights or he fights for his rights, man, you will always have this conflict, these stalemates, these cold wars. But what if I'm giving myself up and saying the important thing in this marriage is that I seek to love you the way Jesus loved his bride. I will give myself for you because it's not about my rights. We are on mission together. There's something in my marriage that's more important than me getting what I want. It is that our marriage be on mission for the sake of something that's way bigger than me and way bigger than her, and way bigger than our marriage. And as we're on mission together, and I'm saying, it's my responsibility to help you do that mission. And she's like, it's my responsibility to help you do that mission. It's our responsibility to help each other live on this mission of becoming more spirit-filled and more like Christ. And now my focus, my goal in marriage has shifted from like self-actualization, where I'm ticked off every time you do something that gets in my way, and now the focus is the radiant splendor of the gospel and people seeing Jesus in me and her and us and I want to just close this way as we do these as we do these uh, ballroom dances here okay and I know enough to know that in a dance like these two people like there's there's a leader technically and there's a follower and dance doesn't work if it's like I'm going to lead no I'm going to lead no I'm going to lead no I'm going to lead, no, I'm gonna lead. And it doesn't even work if you're, like, agreed that, like, what are we doing? We're doing the foxtrot, okay? But if one of you is like, we're doing a waltz, and I'm going to lead, and the other one's like, no, we're doing a foxtrot, and I'm going to lead. And that's what marriage ends up being in our culture is, like, we're doing two different dances. we got two different missions, two different visions for how this is going to go down. I'm going to lead. No, I'm going to lead. And we're like, sweet, we're egalitarian. we got a mess on our hands. And the way this works, and I think God... Design dance, if I can say. Like, God dances in the Bible. Zephaniah, look it up. So in this dance, it's like, I'll lead, not because I'm controlling you, not because I want to domineer you, but because there needs to be a leader. And you follow. And you watch that dance of two people that are like, you take the lead, and I'll follow your steps. And, and you don't see miserable people. You don't see, you, you can watch their face Like, you see joy. You see love. They dance. And it's pure joy. And family, like, I I just want us, like, I, I have no agenda with this other than to properly represent Christ and what's in the text of Scripture. And I genuinely believe this is what the Scripture is saying. Yes, a man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. But they are equals. And within that equality, God says, husband, lead. And what do you do with that leadership? You lay down your life for her so that your gospel marriage is a husband and a wife, each saying, my focus is not my rights, but my responsibility to love you and to help you become the person that God wants you to become.